Welcome to episode number 57 of Nurses Living the Good Life. My name's Ann Conkley. I'm a certified nurse midwife and a certified life and business coach, and I'm so glad that you're here. So I want to talk with you about a recent experience I had in the healthcare system, and I want to point out some of the flaws and points of frustration, not that these will be new to you, but I want to just um, look at them for the sake of you and I as healthcare experts and people who are invested in our healthcare system as the people who sometimes also perpetuate harm by the things that we do. So we'll get into that first and foremost. So um, I just want to say happy spring to you. It's a um, lovely kind of time here in Cleveland. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that I love spring. This is a fantastic time to just watch the tulips start to come up and the daffodils and things are starting to pop around the yard, which is exciting. Um, we just had St. Pat's uh, and um, had a fantastic time. Um, we were um, uh, around the city of Cleveland in a party bus uh, and just hopping from bar to bar and seeing the bagpipers and seeing, you know, different bands. And it was, uh, it was so much fun. We just had a ton of fun and it was, you know, good, good old fashioned, um, you know, a little bit of debauchery and a lot of laughter and, uh, and, you know, a couple bruises, you know how that happens where you're like, how did I get this bruise? Did I fall? I don't know. So um, it was so fun and I can't wait to do it again. And uh, I'm already thinking about the next St. Patrick's Day. Um, so, uh, and then I, I have to also share that my, um, oldest son is, is soon to turn, uh, uh, 24 shit. He's not that old, which means that I would be really old, but no, my youngest son or oldest son is about to turn 13 and I, um, um, in, in shock and awe, I think right now, actually also because this comes on the heels of last night, like I woke up literally drenched in sweat and I was like, starting into the perimenopause. Um, and you know, it's just that moment where I think I've, I look at it and think, wow, how did I get here? How do I have a almost 13 year old? And how do I have a body that's entering into perimenopause? I know I'm that age, uh, in my early forties. And I also kind of look at it and think, but really already. Um, so and maybe you can relate to that too, but, uh, but watching this, my oldest, you know, become a teenager and, you know, thinking about being a mom with a teenager, I mean, it's just, it, it feels surreal if we're being honest. It doesn't feel like 13 years ago I was, you know, anticipating his labor and birth and, you know, and in the throes of labor and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, breastfeeding and pumps and all that. And uh, so it's exciting, although I will admit he's uh, quickly approaching my height, which is unbelievable. I mean, I, it's, it's a almost surreal experience to have a uh, one of your prodigy grow so big that they all of a sudden you are, and my mom used to say this all the time. She'd say like, you know, I used to like, you know, my, my mom's relatively short, she's about five, five feet tall. And she's like, I used to like point down to you. And then I would point at you, you know, like eye to eye. And she's like, now I just have to look up and <laughs> point my finger up at you. And I feel like that's, what's going on with William. I'm watching my oldest son, um, you know, grow and, and at what feels like an exponential rate between, you know, the way his pants all of a sudden just are floods and, um, and, and the growth of his feet. And it's just unbelievable. So anywho, so that's where I am. This is the season that I'm in, you know, we're in birthday season two and celebrating and I'm soon to have a birthday here. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of the year, the, that time of the year, which I love. Um, and, uh, you know, happy to be here. So, 
So I want to talk about, um, you know, this recent experience I had uh, in the healthcare system. And I've, if you've uh, been on any of my recent webinars or if you've, uh, you know, been a client in the program in Nurses Living the Good Life, you know a little bit about this because I've talked about it. But I didn't go into detail and I just want to really give a sense of um, this experience that I had and share it because I think that we as healthcare providers, and even though I'm not in the clinical setting, I, can, I still am you know, licensed and consider myself a midwife and still think back to over 15 years of being at the bedside and with patients and with women. And really, it made me really think about you know some of the, the ways in which I've communicated with people and some of the uh, techniques that we use that are harmful and some of which are supportive. And I just want to make sure that you and I on this podcast have a conversation and we are very clear about you know the way in which we, um, we can cause harm and, and so that we build our awareness so that we can choose to do differently and choose to do better. Uh, which I think is uh, inherently available to all of us if we are willing to be so self-aware as to note when the actions that we take and the things that we say and the ways in which we approach the world are harmful to others. So um, so let me give you kind of the background on this. So I had a family member going to the hospital and um, and and it was a um, it, it was a um, we, we had an experience like a we call it uh, tail to nose. Uh, experience, right? Like we had the EMT all the way from, you know, emergency medical services, ambulance rides, uh, emergency room, hospital transfer from one hospital to another hospital, um, being managed by an intensivist, being managed by, you know, with several consulting services, and then uh, discharge home. So I feel like we had a really great, you know, uh, roundabout exposure to all the services at one of our local healthcare institutions who will remain unnamed. Uh, and, um, and so, and it brought me back to a lot of the, um, you know, the parts about healthcare that I love and a lot of the parts about healthcare that I think are um, really damning and that don't make um, our work better and don't make our patients better. And uh, so, so to paint this picture, Here's me, and I'm in a family of people who are healthcare and non-healthcare, right? As most of you will understand. And my role as an advanced practice nurse with my training and background is that when I show up in my family, uh, maybe you can relate to this too, that when I show up in my family, my job is to be essentially the medical person in the family who has, um, you know, who understands, um, you know, not only midwifery and women's health, but who also has just a basic uh, language and appreciation and understanding of kind of more complex disease process and, and um, you know, and bits of primary care and that kind of thing. So my role really in the family is to be the one who helps to take the information that, that people have and that to break it down in a way that uh, they can understand it and then to really dis disperse it, right? So, um, and I, I look at myself as an advocate for the people in my family and I know that you too probably show up in this role, whether or not you want to <laughs> or not, uh, you probably show up in this role as well and 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 ask the questions and you wanna be you know apprised of what's going on and you wanna be an active team member in the care and you recognize that, you know, if the um, service comes by and no one is there to welcome you know, or ask the hard questions of the people who are representing the service, what the, whatever services has been consulted, 
you know, sometimes you don't get access to them, right? And then you're searching for answers. And it's not like I'm in the back, you know, and I've got a pager and a directory and I can just call somebody or send them a text page and be like, hey, what's going on with the patient in room nine, right? I don't have that luxury anymore because I'm outside of the system. So so it's important to be present and to really make sure that when you have someone, especially someone who is in any way compromised and cannot speak for themselves, that you are a presence for them, you know, to do that work. So so here's my family. We've got healthcare and non-healthcare. We'll just put it that way. And several of us are nurses, which I've talked about quite a bit before. So, you know, we're, we're no uh, schmucks in the healthcare system. You know what I mean? Like, I, trust me, if, if there was ever a way to save time or ever, you know, I, I know it and I've done it myself because I've been on the floor and worked with patients in a variety of capacities for many years, right? Just as, as you probably have too. So when um, the uh, we were in the hospital and we're sitting there and um, the patient was, um, this is interesting, right? The team came in and said, you know, like, we think she'll probably be, you know, discharged uh, tomorrow. And so sure enough, um, the, you know, we start to ask some questions and, and we're talking about, oh, great, you know, uh, discharge could be tomorrow. How exciting. And when... Um, the uh, tech came in and I said, hey, is it possible for, um, you know, to get the IV removed? Like, would that be anything that would be possible? And the tech, and the, it was a nice kid. And I say kid because this guy looked like he was probably, I don't know, like 16. He was just this like little baby face, super cute um, kid and nice. I mean, just like nice as could be. And he goes, and he goes, well, it's hospital policy. And then, and I didn't say anything. And he goes, but you know what? I don't know because she's being discharged tomorrow and maybe I could just ask. And I was like, great. That's a wonderful, fantastic answer. And so he, you know, proceeds out of the room and then he, I'm sure all of a sudden was like, well, I should probably go contact the nurse for the, um, for this patient. So sure enough, the nurse comes in a little while later and she says, and I said, and, and one of my other family members actually now taking the reins and, you know, is it possible for, uh, the IV to re be removed? It seems really painful, you know, for the patient. And the nurse said, well, and she, she stood at the kind of corner of the bed. Now there's a couple people in the room. Okay. Because we've got like a, we've got like a small party going on, <laughs> you know, in terms of people visiting. And so the nurse now, from a standpoint of just looking at this situation objectively, the nurse is the sole person who's the employed right in the room and then you get the patient in the bed and you get all these family members around and you guys know how this goes with the dynamics of um emotions and emotional contagion and when you're in a room and how sometimes if you don't own your you know space in the room that you can get snowplowed by some of these patients and the family members and look they all mean well you know by and large however sometimes you got to just make sure that your energy is in check and you know how you're showing up so that you know you are you know standing from a place of sufficiency and and adequacy and and really communicating from a place not necessarily a power but just from a place of confidence and calm and, and peacefulness within you right like you're not threatened. You're not worried. You're, you're just there. You're like, Hey, so, so she came in the room and, and, uh, and was asked, you know, do you think we, we could get the IV out knowing full well, discharge planning has already been discussed. It's going to be um, probably tomorrow and she's tolerating PO patients tolerating PO. And so, you know, why not? So she says, uh, no, it's hospital policy and, uh, no. And then she kind of paused and she said, and 
if we didn't have IV access, then she would have to get an IO in her shin. And I literally, I, I think my mouth probably hit the ground. And I was so flabbergasted because I was thinking in my own head, did she just say IO is in an intraosseous uh, in her shin? I, like, are, we, we are not on like ER here. Like I, I was like in my own head, like, wait, what is going on? And then she said, um, she said, so, uh, and, and then one of the other people in the room said, well, don't you have to change these out? You know, it's been in for a couple of days. And she said, no, we, we don't, you know, change them till the seven day mark. And, you know, unless they're saying, showing signs of infection or, you know, anything and hers looks good. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, all right, I get it. And then she said, um, so, you know, essentially no. And then she left the room and she left the room. And then I look at, uh, one of my other family members, who's also a nurse. And I said, Hey, did she just say that she was going to have to, and nobody else in the room caught it because they're not healthcare. But I looked at her and I was like, did she just say that she'd have to put, if she didn't have IV access, peripheral access, that she'd have to go for an IO in her shin. And, and we were kind of like, what in the actual fuck? Are, like what, what we're on the floor here. Number one, number two, we're not like, you know, I, I mean, you, and if you've been around the healthcare system, you understand this. I always joke, laugh and chuckle a little bit because one of our uh, friends is a, um, is a uh, fire department chief, um, longtime firefighter and EMT. And he, and I always like share war stories from, you know, clinical practice and, you know, things that he sees out in the field and always fun to like chat with him. But one of the things that we have talked about time and time again is when I see him, I'm like, have you used the DeWalt recently? Because I think it's fascinating, right? A lot of the EMTs keep and the ambulances keep a DeWalt drill on the ambulance so that they can access through the bone, do an intraosseous in the event that they don't, they cannot get peripheral access and they need to. And as you know, for somebody who is unstable and who is collapsing, like in terms of cardiac, like sometimes you, that's what you need. And so that's what they do. And that's in an emergent situation. And for that moment in time, thank God it's there, right? You know, the wonderful that we have access to the DeWalt drill and can do an IO. And for a floor patient who's otherwise stable, I just think it was a little much, you know, that's what was going through my mind. And so I'm I'm sitting there processing and my family members don't get it because they don't understand what IO shin means. And I said I said that that I said the nurse just came in and said that if she, if if the IV was taken out and there was no access that that the nurse would have to go and do an it, through the bone administration of, you know, whatever fluids or medication or whatever. And my family members were all like, what? Did they even do that? I mean, like, these are people who are not in healthcare, right? But they're like, are you kidding? And I was like, no, this is so ridiculous. So that's what I would call incident number one. Now let's go on to incident number two. A few hours later, nurse comes in and says to the patient, uh, I haven't seen a void in close to 12 hours and you need to, uh, you know, we need a void. Otherwise, I'm gonna have to call the doctor. <laughs> And so I'm kind of sitting there chuckling and she goes, and if you can't void, then we're going to need to do a straight cath. And, um, you know, the patient was not able, was confined to the bed um, for purposes of monitoring. And so I looked at her and said, you know, what about a bedpan? Can we do a bedpan? Like, is that possible? She was like, well, uh, I guess. So then she leaves, the nurse leaves, goes and gets one of the techs. The text comes over with, you know, the, uh, a bedpan. And, um, you know, we took it from there, got a void, no big deal. Right. 
And um, so that was incident number two, okay? Now, incident number three is at the end of the shift. It's probably 6.45, which I know, trust me, I know it's a terrible time to ask any nurse anything when it's 6.45 if they're leaving at seven, right? Because it's just an annoyance. You're like, I have 15 fucking minutes left. All I wanna do is get the hell out of here. I don't wanna see the patients. I've already done my assessments. I've like put my notes in so that I can cruise out of here and make sure it's seven. I'm literally like, I'm already calling a reporter. I'm giving it over the phone and I am walking out OTD, right? I get it. I so get it. And so at 6.45, I went up to the nurse's station and stood there at the front desk. And now here it is. It's me uh, with my youngest son. And uh, and then there's like a flood of nurses. And I know they're nurses because this one particular institution where uh, we were, the uh, culture is such that the there are different uh, colors based on who you are and your you know level of expertise that you have, which I think is terrible medical patriarchy in general. But they count it and say, well, actually, then the patients know who's who and whatever. Oh, whatever. Sounds good. I don't think it's a great idea, but fine. Um, so I know they're all nurses because they're all in white and they're all standing there. And so I went up to the patient's nurse and I said, um, hey, so do you have any idea or understanding of when discharge could be tomorrow? And she said, nope. And I said, okay. How about, um, have, do you know if any of the services will be by tonight to see the patient? She said, no. And I said, okay. And I wasn't expecting her to say yes. I mean, it's almost 7 p.m. And I've, it's on a Friday night. So I'm like, nobody's coming in, you know, to the, the floor. I get it. I'm not expecting that. But I just wanted to, you know, see what I could get out of her. I said, okay. Uh, I said, well, then um, do you know what? the note says, like, do you know if there's been any notes written? And she said, no. At which point you could see, I was just asking questions, getting one word answers. Now I'm on my third question. And you could just feel the tension at that desk, like the eyes. It was like you could have heard a pin drop. That This is how it replays in my mind, which is probably uber dramatic, but bear with me. Um, and so you could hear a pin drop at that desk though, because all, I felt like all the eyes were all of a sudden on me and it was just, I, because here I am just asking questions, just want to understand the plan, know the plan, share the plan. That's how I was trained and taught in my old job. So I just have this, I guess, you know, assumption that we just know the plan, share the plan, wherever we go, use it in my household. Also think that healthcare institutions can use it. Right. Uh, so I said, uh, Okay. And I, you, and I, I was getting a little bit annoyed because I'm thinking in the back of my mind, why don't you just turn the computer screen around and I will look in the damn chart myself. I'll go through the consult notes and I will then see whether or not the primary service or the specialty services have made mention of discharge. And then I will just take it upon myself to understand what, when discharge is possible. And, you know, I know, I know I'm a little bit controlling. I own that a hundred percent. And I also was looking for her to do some portion of hunting or investigation or to at least just not give me a shoulder shrug of no, because that just felt like a slap in the face. So then the nurse sitting next to her goes, you know what? Let me look in the chart. I'll, let me look in the chart. I'll just take a peek at the note. So she takes a peek at the note and she goes, well, and so the um, the primary nurse who's, uh, you know, that we had been working with said, well, 
she's under a general surgery, you know, service. And I said, nope, general service. Nope. We've had several consults this entire duration of the hospital stay and general surgery is neither the primary nor, uh, um, nor one that has been consulted to my knowledge. And, uh, so no, actually, no, that's, that's not true. And then I could feel like the eyes. I mean, I could feel people like looking at me and I can feel myself getting a little bit, you know, in this moment, a little bit nervous, a little bit kind of angered and probably not nervous, definitely more anger coming through. And so, um, which I, you know, noticed in myself and took a breath and then the nurse behind the desk said, uh, I don't see anything in here. Like she's looking at the note and I still desperately want to just turn the damn monitor screen and just be like, let me goddamn do it. <laughs> but I didn't. So she said, no, I don't see anything in here. So then I look back at the primary nurse and I said, okay, so tonight for the nurse that comes on, if you could pass on a message to the nurse that's coming on for 7P to 7A, if you just pass on to that nurse that the family and the patient are both interested in understanding when discharge will be and so that we can plan for that. And um, so if you can pass it on to the night shift nurse and then the night shift nurse can actually ask the day shift nurse. And and I looked at her and in the middle of this, I said, are you going to be back tomorrow? She goes, no. And I was like, well, that's a good thing for both of us in my mind. Um, and so, but I said, okay, so if you can pass it on, maybe the day shift nurse can uh, tell the family or tell the patient that would be appreciated. And she was like, okay. And then I was just like, I'm going to lose my shit. I am literally going to lose my fucking shit. So I, I looked at Ryan and I said, we're out of here. Let's go. And then, so we're walking out and my littlest child, who's maybe almost 10 years old said to me, wow, she didn't know a lot of the answers. And I said, she didn't, did she? And he said, no. Like, he was just like surprised. I mean, it was just comical to see him coming at it from like a, a state of surprise and like, just from like curiosity. And, and I said, I know. I said, I thought that was very interesting too, in fact. And so sure enough, we walk out and and I was thinking about the experience and I was thinking just after the fact, and I couldn't put my finger on it for a minute about how I felt, but I came to understand that I felt very angry and I felt like my anger was just as a result of just feeling like, you know, there was this uh, power struggle between the two of us and, 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 or not even between me and this nurse, but just between the nurse and the family and the nurse kind of, and, you know, the patient. And it just felt like very, um, the word that came to mind was, um, threatening. And, you know, for all the work that I've done, whether it's been over the past few years as, um, a certified, uh, life coach, whether it's in business coaching, whether it is in my own, you know, the, the own, my own work that I do with my coach and my therapist and just getting a handle on my emotions. You know, the more that I, I stop and witness behavior that isn't useful uh, in myself, the more I can see how unuseful it is in other people, right? Because here's the key, self-awareness, right? We, we talk about self-awareness a lot, especially in my program. We talk about awareness is really always the first step because if you don't have awareness around how you feel, it's super hard to be acknowledging and understanding of how other people feel. And, and that's one thing I think we do very well as advanced practice nurses, um, you know, to an extent. And I also want to mention, sometimes we're, uh, we're just not on point in terms of like 
being able to name our emotions, which why one of the reasons that my program is built is to support emotional intelligence and self-awareness and emotional quotient in advanced practice nurses, because I think it is lacking in a lot of us, not because anything went wrong or we did something wrong, but mostly because these are skills that many of us aren't taught. And we're not taught by either the people who raised us or we're not taught by the institutions that employ us. And so sometimes we're at a disadvantage in terms of being able to manage all those emotions when they come up, whether it's anger or frustration or in in, in, you know, a variety of, of settings. And you and I both know that in healthcare, whether we're on the patient side or on the provider side, there's frustration all around, right? So it's an important skill. But I was just thinking about this and I thought, you know, why was I so triggered by the whole thing? And I thought, well, I think it's because when she presented, the nurse presented originally and said, no, it's not possible. And um, that won't work. And it's hospital policy. It was almost as if, you know, that was set in stone and that just wasn't, we weren't going anywhere from there. There was just no wiggle room on that. And and then I was thinking too, well, when you stand from a place of power and you try to exert power over people, inherently what happens is that harm is caused to those people, right? Because that's what happens in a structure where those have their, those who have power and those who don't have power, those who have power try to maintain the power at all costs, and then they oppress and marginalize and discriminate against and inadvertently, though they may not set out to do initially, but cause harm to those people who are in the um, the less powerful position. And, and right, it's the opposite of shared governance. It's the opposite of shared power. And so, but this behavior is so often what happens in healthcare. There's someone who has the answers, someone who has the power, and then there's all the other plebeians around who are, you know, not as lucky and they have to do some level of suffering, right? And it's inherent and sometimes you know, the, whether it's the structure of, of the nurses that we interact with, the advanced practice nurses, the doctors, there are, no profession is immune to this. So I'm not calling us out without calling out the rest of our healthcare profession. But for the purpose of this conversation, we're really focusing on nurses and advanced practice nurses. Um, but I just had this sense that, you know, she was operating from a place of feeling very threatened. And, and usually when you feel threatened, it's usually originating from a place of fear. And what's interesting is that when you show up with to engage with patients or engage with families and you show up from a place of fear, well, I mean, you know how good that goes. I mean, literally, all of a sudden you try to rule the roost, all of a sudden you're like, but it has to be, you get super controlling. You try to like, you know, make sure that you're the loudest voice in the room, maybe. You definitely get a little bit of defensiveness in there because you're like, you don't know the policy, okay? Back the fuck off, right? Like these are all normal things that happen when you feel threatened and when, you know, under the surface, there's a lot of fear in the background. That's how the brain is designed to work. Um so we're not here, we're not here to judge the nurse. And I, I, this is why I'm not using her name and I don't call her out. I wish her no harm. I wish her only everything but love. I swear to you, I do. And I also think if we don't have conversations like this, which talk about what happens when we operate from a place of fear or we operate in a, a hierarchy uh, that, um, that promotes those who have power and, and keep them in power and those who don't, all we do is cause harm to people. And we don't have to do it that way. We don't have to be the people who operate from a place of fear and who threaten people. We don't have to we don't have to be the providers who deny patients their own autonomy. We we don't have to be the patient uh, the providers who um, make it unsafe for them to be accessing care and who who promulgate shame and um 
you know, negativity and uh, who don't uh, build our patients up right in those moments to be advocates for themselves and who don't use the families then to their advantage, right? Because when I'm operating from a place of fear and I'm super defensive and I feel really threatened, man, watch out. I'll do anything to hold on to my power because that's a human brain. And we as healthcare providers have to know that when we operate from that space, the harm that gets caused is irreparable, right? I mean, there's no, you know, you know, if you've uh, ever worked with me and you know, if you've ever attended one of my webinars, we have a problem with infant mortality, especially with infants of color. We have a problem with maternal mortality. I mean, we just, again, we're, um, you know, have some of the worst rates of maternal mortality, especially for women of color of any, we're the worst of any industrialized nation. And it's not because, you know, the meds aren't good. We have a system that uh, operates from a place of fear. We have people who operate sometimes from a place of fear and from bias and they cause harm. They may not mean to do it and they still do it. And because of that, it's a problem, right? And so this was a small example, and I don't, I don't mean to equate it to, um, you know, losing a patient, losing a patient, or or losing a family member with medical racism, and I, that's not the comparison I'm trying to make. But what I do want all of us to see and to notice is that if you don't have a handle on when you show up from a place of fear versus when you show up from a place of love for your patients, then you should not be in clinical practice anymore. That is my, and I know that is a strong statement. But if you do not have ownership over how you show up in a setting to know that you are consistently showing up from a place of not causing harm and always acting from a place of love and curiosity and inquisitiveness and, uh, and, and uh, fascination and you know always operating from this place of, uh, of, of love at the base of it, love for the people that you care for, then you ought not be in healthcare anymore. And I know that that'll get a little bit of pushback. That's okay. I don't care. I'm willing to take it. But you and I don't have that luxury of being able to just uh, walk around unmanaged with you know fear leading the way because we have people who every day in our systems die because of that. We have people who are irreparably harmed because of that. And that's on us. And now look, you're going to say, Anne, you cannot place all the blame of the system on us. And I don't. Trust me, I don't. I have all sorts of uh, you know, recommendations from systems level work down to the individual level work, down to unit work. But when it comes down to the individual, you have got to understand whether or not you show up on a day-to-day basis from a place of fear and threatening. And then you are defensive and you are indignant and you come into the conversations with your patients thinking that that you own them and you own the outcome and they don't have a say and they don't have autonomy and they don't have a right or an ability to say yes to this and no to that, oh no. Because that system causes so much harm. And until we recognize how much harm that causes, we will continue to harm people. And that's unacceptable. So. I, I think this is one of these moments where, you know, and, and I, I have talked to so many people about this, this, uh, incident, uh, and so many different healthcare, uh, providers and, you know, gotten different perspectives. And what I keep coming back to is that, 
it's not someone else's responsibility to make sure that I roll into work, you know, uh, from a place of either being neutral and calm or confident or content, um, rather than threatened, uh, or fearful or, uh, horrified or scared or insecure or inadequate. It's nobody else's responsibility but my own. And the minute that you start to take responsibility for that is a minute when you can exert some control and change what is happening. And that is your responsibility. Can we fix systems? Sometimes, sometimes not. Can we fix units and orgs? Sometimes, sometimes not. Unless we are in decision-making places of power, sometimes we can't. But, but it is your responsibility to make sure that you are aware enough to understand that how you show up impacts the care and what happens to other people. It does. And that's our responsibility. That's on us. So if you're like, oh boy, maybe I have some work to do, then I want to personally invite you to come over to Nurses Living the Good Life because I tell you, I will help you to understand when you are showing up from a place of fear and exactly what happens and why it is so harmful and why you can't, we cannot as a system and we cannot as a profession afford for that sort of behavior anymore, right? That's what we got to do. So, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of a program like Nurses Living the Good Life, which helps you, right? This is the beauty of a pro- program like coach training, which is going to help a lot of more advanced practice nurses have coaching skills in their back pocket so that they can pull them out in these moments. Instead of being threatening, they can come across and be like, you know, I'm not sure. Let me ask. Is that something that you would like taken out? Would you like that IV taken out? Okay. Do you understand the risks involved that if we don't have IV access that we may have to put in another IV and that we don't recommend it, but we honor your patient autonomy? That's the conversation that I was hoping the nurse would have. But instead, she reverted into a place of fear. And I don't blame her for that. I'm not I'm not here to judge her for that. But what I do want is some appreciation for how you and I and every nurse out there shows up so that we, again, don't cause more harm. Not one of us got into this profession to do so. And so let's make sure that in our actions, in our uh, the way that we show up, and in the results that we help our, our patients and our clients create, that we do our due diligence and make sure that we come into those situations really clean with a, um, without fear driving the bus. Right. Um, that interaction could have gone so much differently, so much differently. And all it took was a slight shift for that nurse to not feel fearful, not feel threatened and to become a a partner with, uh, the family. That's it. Is it easy? you know, yeah, absolutely. It is It is if you're willing to change how you do things and how you think about things a little bit differently. Now, is that what you want to do? Well, I don't know. That's for you to decide. But don't make that decision unless you fully appreciate what happens when you don't and when you continue to show up out of a place of fear and you continue to blame or feel threatened or uh, not work with your patients in a format that really supports making decisions between the two of you and not exerting control over them and not coming in as the know-all uh, you know, of, of what's best for the patient. Because you and I don't know what's best for the patient. We have a lot of good ideas. We have a lot of recommendations. We have a lot of suggestions. But at the end of the day, patients have autonomy and they have the ability to make decisions for themselves as long as they are not, you know, they are fully in the capacity to do so. Okay. So, all right. If you have questions, reach out. But 
This is why we have Nurses Living the Good Life. It's a really good reason to have it because this work is important for all of us. And I'm telling you, when you begin to do this work and you start to look at how you show up and you question it and you begin to question, you know, why you do what you do and 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 then it starts to impact, you know, the, the type of care that you give and whether or not you can have uh, relationships that are based on um, not power over, but shared power. It changes everything. And the minute that you learn to do that in one element of your life is the minute that you will take that and you will do it in your relationships and you will do it with your kids. And then you will do it with the people at the grocery store. And by fucking God, what will happen? We will not only change ourselves, but we will also begin to change our little corner of the world and our little part of the healthcare system where we have control. And do you know what happens when all of us do that? All of these little parts of healthcare get changed. And then all of a sudden, we tip the balance from being a healthcare system that causes harm to a healthcare system that doesn't cause harm, to being a profession that contributes to harm versus being a profession that absolutely adamantly never contributes to harm as best it, 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 it can. Okay. So, all right. Nurses Living the Good Life, go check it out and come on over and join us. Um, we're waiting for you. Okay. And we are ready in a non-judgmental way to invite you in to have these kinds of conversations so that the whole of our profession gets better. And so that you have an opportunity to feel good about and better about the work that you're doing. It's so important. All right. I'll see you next time. Take care.